Okay. As I, as I was walking in this morning, I was thinking a little bit about how insane it is that I'm now pastor of this church. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I, I looked at the building and knew who, you know, you guys would be here. I was just thinking, you know, how much work has been done here previous to this? And, um, you know, I, I kind of feel a little bit like, um, some officer that got appointed to some, like, platoon that had been fighting for four years in World War II who just got out of, like, West Point, you know? Or like, hi. <laughs> um, but I want you to know that so far we've been here two days. Alexi and I and our family have been really well taken care of. Uh, Chris Pepler went out and shopped for us and got us the five major Wisconsin food groups being milk, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt. So that was good. Yeah. So we're getting adjusted, so, you know, and um, I know there's one thing I, I want to handle. You know, sometimes you, when you're in a new place, you want to handle some things right up front, and I know that some of you are looking at me and thinking, 32 years old, really? Really, right? And I just want you to know that my birthday is June 21st, so by the time I stand here next week, <laughs> I will be the ripe old age of 33. So. Be comforted by that, if you will. <clears throat> Let's read—now, I don't normally preach out of very well-known passages of Scripture, because I don't like to go to passages and for you to be thinking, oh, I've heard this a hundred times. However, I thought that it, was, it would be really important when you start out, and as we start out together, that we should really focus on the gospel for a few weeks here, and just really make sure where we're moving from. And so I decided, well, why not preach out of basically the best-known passage in the Bible? Um, Luke 15. So let's read what is often called the parable of the lost son, starting in verse 11. So this is Luke 15, verse 11, and I didn't look what the pages in the Pew Bible. I'm sorry. Just copy the person next to you. So Jesus is told a story about a lost sheep. He then tells a story about a lost coin, and now he's going to tell a story about a lost son. It says this, Jesus continued, <coughs> excuse me, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, <clears throat> Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours— who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. <clears throat> My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found Put your cell phones on silent. <laughs> have you ever, um, have you ever had somebody say to you, you know what, you should be happy about this? Have you ever heard somebody say, has anybody said that to you? Um, there are lots of situations like this. Some of them are like really trite ones. It was a while back where Abby and I went to a, a, a father-daughter dance. You know, these daddy-daughter dances? And they had a raffle. Now, I already am prejudiced against raffles because I think, can you come up with a more ridiculous way to make one person happy and everybody else disappointed? You know? And so, you know, when you have a kid raffle, everybody gets a prize, right? So you've got 50 girls, and you've got 50 dads, so you've got 100 prizes. So you've got to sit through 100 things given, given, and you think, oh, well, but everybody gets the thing. Yeah, well, except your, your kid doesn't get that you can only win once. So you get to watch your kid be excited once and disappointed 99 times. Right? So we'd, we were there, and so they'd call out the number, and I had all four tickets because we had some other couple's tickets because we were trying to cheat. And um, <clears throat> they said we could. And so every time they'd read a number, uh, Abby, she was like five at the time, she'd say, Daddy, did we win? And I was like, nope. And she'd go, oh. And they'd read another number. Daddy, did we win? No. Oh. They'd read it. Daddy, did we win? No. Oh. And so we, we, won, we won our little—we won this little cooler kind of early on in the process. We got a little cooler and blanket. And then after about 13 of those Daddy Did We Wins, I finally was like, baby, you know how in the other room they had a little chocolate fountain? Yeah. Okay, well, about every third person loses their fruit in the chocolate and it sinks to the bottom. Let's sneak in there and dig all those out. <laughs> She's like, okay. Her mom was putting her to bed, so— <clears throat> or sometimes the stuff that's a little more important, but not the super—like, so you take somebody hunting on your place, and they shoot some monster, you know, and you're like, nice, glad I put you in that stand, you know? Or, um, <clears throat> you know, you take somebody out in your boat, and they catch the biggest fish, or you, you go out golfing with some dude, and he hits some shot he can't hit, and you normally beat him by three strokes, and now he beats you by two, and it's just frustrating. Or, look, I don't know what it is for women. Insert something feminine, you know? But other, listen, other times it gets a lot more serious, right? Some, somebody you know, they get a promotion, and you're kind of like, you're thinking, I, I, want, a pr I want a promotion. Or, um, 
somebody else gets married, you know, and maybe you want to get married, or maybe you wanted to marry the person they married. Um, <laughs> or, you know, a lot of people really struggle with having children, you know. People struggle with infertility or having multiple miscarriages. And, um, you know, then some doofus, they get married, and like two weeks later, they're like, oops, we're having a baby! And you're like, I just want to back over, hit you and then back over you in my car. You know, but you're not, but you're not supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to feel that way. You're supposed to be happy for them. There's lots of situations like that in life. And one of the situations I think is the, one of the most difficult situations for us, I think, as Christians is when we see bad people. Okay, pause, caveat. This, just this morning, when I say good people and bad people, what I mean by this is bad people are people who do stuff that we don't think they're supposed to culturally. So good people are people who pay their taxes and go to work and stay with their families and do all the stuff they're supposed to. Bad people are the people who don't do all that stuff, okay? That's, that's what I mean this morning when I say good and bad people. And so I think one of the most difficult things for Christians is when bad people come to faith and they get accepted in the community fully and they start participating in all the blessings that come from following Jesus and it's just, it's kind of like they just get to cheat the system. It's just, they just get— they don't come to practice, but they still get to play. And it can be—I think it can be really difficult to be really happy about that whole dynamic. And one of the things that, that we need to see, um, if we're going to accept the fact that when people come to faith, they shouldn't have to get hazed for a couple years before they can be real full Christians, okay? If we're going to accept that that's the way the gospel works, then— I think we need to focus really clearly on what the story of the prodigal son or the lost son is really about, because the story isn't really about the lost son. Now, to lay that out, let me—let's lay out just a little bit of conflict, a little bit of conflict, context. Luke 15 has three stories. Can you think of anywhere else in the Bible in which there are three stories that are basically about the same thing that Jesus tells over and over again in complete redundancy? Because I can't. But in Luke 15, you know, let's see if this works. On. Hey. I went to college. So there's, okay, so there's three stories. And so the first one is about a lost lamb. And then here, what's the last verse in that story? Verse 7. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Right? And then he tells a story about the lost coin. A woman loses her coin, turns over her whole house until she finds it. She says, let's have a party. And then the last verse, verse 10 is, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then you get to the end of the story of the lost son, and what does the father say? Basically, he says, you can throw as many hissy fits as you want, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this guy, he was lost, and he's found he was dead, and he's alive again, right? And so this, the story of all of Luke 15 is Jesus saying in three successive redundant stories— Locking it down with the prodigal son story is that when unsavory, irresponsible, inconsiderate, immoral people come to repentance, you and I should be happy about it. That's the point. 
That's what grace is. In fact, it was funny. Um, Steve Tadovich sent me an email before I got here. Can I say this? Is it okay? I'm just <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke. Yeah. Um, that, you know, he's like, just make sure you're really loving. That would be the advice that I would give you. And Lexi and I both, we both pulled randomly out of the tray, the little nuggets. We both got grace. And um, the, the point is, is that Christianity is, is about a lot of things. Okay, because God is infinitely complex, Christianity is about a lot of things. But it ultimately comes down to the fact that Christ made it so that moralism isn't the way of the world. That was the whole point. The death of Jesus was the destruction of moralism so that we could love Jesus and actually live morally, ultimately. We would ultimately live for the good, the true, and the beautiful. Ultimately, we would live morally by destroying moralism. The gospel is all about that. Okay? And so, this is the lockdown story for this. And so what he's saying is, when the kind of—whatever kind of person you don't like. So if you're a Democrat, there's a certain kind of person you don't like. If you're a Republican, there's a certain kind of person you don't like. If you're from this side of the tracks or this much, everybody has a kind of person they don't like. And the point is, when that kind of person comes to faith, they come to repentance, they come to Jesus, you ought to be happy about it. And for a lot of us, those are different people. Now, the second bit of context we have to remember is who Jesus is telling the story to. Because we, we often think—here's what we think. Because the verse starts with, now the tax collectors—this is verse 1 in chapter 15—now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, right? And then Jesus tells these stories about the lost stuff, right? And so what is he saying? There's all these prostitutes and tax collectors and, you know, accountants all around—I'm just kidding—all around Jesus and— there, and Jesus is basically telling these bad people that God would, would search out and love them, and he would be glad if they would come to repentance and come into the family of God. And then we go, oh, what a wonderful story about grace, how Jesus loves everybody. That's not what this is about. That is the subtext, but you've got to read the rest of verse 1. The rest of, here's the rest—I'm sorry, you have to read verse 2. Verse 2 says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then in verse 3 it says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Who's the them? Who's them in this? So all, all of chapter 15 is told to the them. Who's the them? See, the them, in, you see, Luke intentionally doesn't say, right? But if you read it carefully, who's it got to be first? Well, the, who it has to be first is the, the closest person in the context, right? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then more widely, you've got the sinners on the outside looking at the Pharisees going, See, we told you. Jesus rocks. You're in trouble. But Jesus is telling this, and, and, and how do we know that for certain? Here's how we know it for certain. When you get to the end of the story of the prodigal son, when you finally get to the end, who is the application point for? Who is the person who has to make a choice at the end of this story? It's not the lost son. It's not the bad people. Bad people are partying, eating a fattened calf. Woo! Barbecue! That, 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 that part of the story has resolved. We've already gotten to climax and resolution, and, and then Jesus opens a whole nother conflict and brings it to climax and then stops, right? Bad storytelling or great storytelling, Right? He leaves the conflict open because basically the older son has to make a choice. And who of the people Jesus is speaking to has to make a choice? 
It's the Pharisees. It's not the sinners. It's, he's, he's speaking to the good religious people, the moral people, the people who have a moral right to look at these other people and say they're scumbags. He's talking to those people, and he's saying to those people, you have a choice to make. And so th- here's what I would say about this. I would say, therefore, the, the story of the prodigal son is not— um, a story to be preached on the street down on campus or somewhere where there are sinful people wherever. I don't know. It, th- this is a parable that needs to be preached in church because who are the people in Madison that have a choice to make through what Jesus said based on this parable? It's the people in this room. It's us. It's the good religious people who are living right, who are enjoying the benefits of clean living. It's us. Right? So, let's, let's move our way quickly through the lockdown story. Now, I'm going to go a little bit fast through this, and it's mainly because I do not want to be tedious for the kids. So they, that could be their first memory of me. So this might go a little, ooh, we'll see. So this story basically breaks down into two acts. The first act is the younger son. And there's two, there is a conflict Jesus is creating that is designed to be an intractable conflict, a conflict that you cannot logically decide about. And it's meant to morally and emotionally infuriate you if you're a good person, okay? That's the device Jesus is using. It's brilliant, and it's needed, and therefore we could read the story every day, okay? So the first one is that the son is horrible, okay? The younger son is horribly wicked. This, this dude is evil. He is a—he's not—this is not some teenager who got a little drunk and took a hit off a bong at some party and drove the car into a tree and nobody was hurt. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're talking about a guy who has no respect for anybody, doesn't care about anything but himself, doesn't think about the future, doesn't think about God, doesn't think about his brother, doesn't think about his family, doesn't think about his father, doesn't think about anything but just doing what he wants when he wants, and that's all. He has about the moral system of a dog working, and he's a grown-up. That's what we're dealing with here. Let me give you some clues from the text if you looked over them. The first is, he asks his living father for his inheritance. Now, you might think, when you read that, you'd be like, oh, I must be missing something culturally here. That must have been okay in the first century. No, it was not okay in the first century. In fact, um, if it, it was 10 times worse than it would be right now if you asked your living parent for an inheritance. I don't know anybody who that's gone well for. Okay. And so there's—I just want you to know, you are not missing anything historically, culturally, about this guy asking his dad for his inheritance. It is worse than you would think it is. It's horrible. And then secondly, um, Jesus uses the word gather and scatter for how this guy lives. Now, you don't really pick it up in the NIV, but let me read you Deuteronomy 30. Let me think I have a slide for this. Yeah. Deuteronomy 33 says this. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, uh, the same two words are used as are used in this passage in Luke. So it says, not long after that, the younger son gathered all he had, gathered, set off for a distant country, and there squandered. The word Jesus used there is scattered. So basically, this is a dude who, like, he got his bucket, he dipped his bucket in the seeds, and just kind of went, that's how much respect he had 
for all of the wealth all of the successive generations of his family had prepared so that when this father passed away and no longer could protect his family and provide for them, they would have some form of asset for the protection of him and his wife and his children to be built upon to then be passed to the next generation so that they would have life security. Right? That's what a loving family does. It tries to provide for the next generation. And if each generation has respect for what a family is, they will take the asset from the last generation and invest it in use for the security of their family and then pass as much as possible on for the security of the next generation. This is, this is not as much true today in white-collar society, but in agrarian society where you could have droughts that lasted for years, it was absolutely paramount. This guy was basically drawing a line in the sand to end his family line. Everything that, that since the generation of Joseph had accumulated in this family, this father gives to this guy, and he just goes off on a trip and wastes all of it. That's the kind of person this son is. I mean, the fact that he went out and squandered it with prostitutes, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just like the next expectation. I mean, it's not even a surprise if you're following Jesus to this point as he's arguing through this, what this dude is like. And one of the things I think is important to remember is, is that this guy isn't, even when he comes home, he's not particularly repentant. His, his whole, like, dad, I'm sorry, is part of his deal. He's starving to death. It's not like he was out there feeding pigs and morally and spiritually he came to his senses and said, what have I become? He looked down at his, his body that was losing weight where he could see his ribs and he looked at his guts and said, what have I become? And he said, here's what I'll do. I'll go and I'll say this to my dad. And he'll feel bad for me and he'll accept me back. Right? And so, see, when Jesus even talks about this guy coming back, he doesn't go out of his way to show that the guy's even that sincere. Now think about that. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus have a sinful person coming to faith and leave any question as to how deeply repentant he was? And here's why I think. Because I think we should be glad even if unsavory people come into this church and we're not even sure about their sincerity. We should be glad they just came through those doors. We should be glad that they just showed up at the Bible study. We should be glad they agreed to have lunch with us. Any, any step in the direction of the Savior, no matter how insincere we think we are in our little morally judging worlds, we should be glad about. So we shouldn't just say, oh, you know what? When they, when they get baptized, then I'll be, I'll be happy they're here. I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, when they walk across the property line, you know, even if they were—the father, when was the father glad he was coming home? The dude was still way down the road. He's like, he took a step in our direction. This is fantastic. So I think it's important for us, if we're going to read this story carefully, is to see that this, this guy's sincerity is up for debate, at least. You could make the argument he's insincere. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, father. He came to the house. But we should—I don't think we can take comfort from, yeah, he was awful, but then, yeah, he was really repentant. Well, he was definitely awful. 
But his repentance may have even added to his sinfulness. And I th- one of the things I think is important to re- recognize here is, is that, you know what? We need to be really careful about judging people's um, in- intentions. Not, not because we're wrong or right, but because I- I'm really bad at judging mine. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, so the first idea here is, is that the son is really bad. Okay, this is not a dude who's a little, ah, he left the, ah. No, this guy is horrible. Okay, now the second is the son's, the younger son's need. And that is that the younger son came into extreme need and great suffering. He goes from being a son living off a trust fund to be a pig-feeding hireling in a place that was turned into a desert. Um, and he accepts a job feeding pigs. Now, listen, I know that there is this rumor out there that pigs are the cleanest animal or whatever, you know? But listen, of the, of the maybe four or five times that I nearly spontaneously vomited immediately upon smelling something in my life, okay? Something like, I'm gonna go with, I'm gonna go with 80% were around pigs. You can't do, you can't do four and 80%. So set, we'll go with 75. 70, I mean, like, the, the, the times of my life, I was like, oh my gosh, what's that? Yep, pigs. Definitely pigs. They may be organized in how they move around their feces and roll in it. I don't know. <laughs> I can't really, I can't really speak to that. I'm not an agrarian. But what I can say is this. They are some filthy animals. And then added to that is the whole idea is, what is the cultural background of this guy? He's a what? He's a Jew, right? And what is a pig? A pig is an unclean animal. And so to take a job feeding unclean animals, unclean food, working—I mean, every last ounce of his cultural identity is obliterated. And one of the things that it says here is that—it says in verse 16. See, it doesn't—what it doesn't say in verse 16 is, you know what? If he had an opportunity, he would have eaten some of the pig's food just to curb his hunger a bit. In verse 16, what it says is this. He says, he— longed to fill his stomach with what the pig's reading. He longed. Now listen, I have longed to go to P.F. Chang's. Okay? I have longed to go to P.F. Chang's. I love those noodles. Um, the Mongolian beef just— Okay, so I'm back. And so, um, but that's, that's not what— I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen what pigs eat, but we had pigs one time. I grew up on kind of a, kind of a farm, and we had pigs one time, and I had to carry food out to them. That is, I mean, that is some nasty stuff. That is the stuff that, you know, the garbage, it's too, it's too bad to go in the garbage. You know what I'm saying? And the, the word Jesus uses here for um, pods, it refers to something called a care pod, which I, have, I think I have a picture of here. And um, it's basically this really dried, crackly thing that's really good for nothing. Okay? And so basically this guy's looking at garbage smeared dried magnolia leaves. And he's in the place in his life where he longed to fill his stomach. And even that was denied him. Because it says right after that, but no one gave him anything. Which could actually mean that he took the pig feeding job and then the boss stiffed him after he worked. Had nothing. Now, if you can't even get some pig food. I mean, that's a low place. That's a low place. And so here's what Jesus is doing. And I think we, I think we need to let ourselves feel this because I think we have been taught to go around thinking we're good 
pluralistic, liberal-minded people and, th- and thinking that we don't judge people and we don't, we're not moralists. And Okay, we are all moralists. It is, it is the default setting of the human heart. And the minute—it's like when— it, You know how, like, some of those programs, they, like, take over your computer? You can set your default to something else, and they just switch it right back. It's like— Moralism is like one of those programs that runs behind the thing that you've got to pull up your task bar, your um, task manager to get rid of it. And the minute you get rid of it, it pops right back up. That's what moralism is in our hearts. Right? And see, what we do is we think— that because we're not moralistic in the same way other people are moralistic, that those people are moralistic and we're not. Right? So Republicans are moralistic in a different way than Democrats. Democrats are moralistic in it, but every, they're both moralists. Right? Just listen to 20 minutes of the radio, right? They're just completely moralists. But, you see, what Jesus is doing here is saying, listen, you cannot stop feeling that. And you need to accept the fact that that's what's going to come up in your heart. The question is, what are you going to, how is the gospel going to speak to that impulse in our hearts? Because the fact is, is that on some level, if you're listening to this story and you're a good person, you're a little happy about what's happened to this guy. Now, you might, you might not feel that way right now because you're in church. And you went, oh, the poor prodigal son. Somebody needs to hug him. He's so sad. But if you were in your car listening to NPR and you heard about some dude at BP who like cut a corner so that the oil spill happened and now he's going to prison for 10 years, you'd just about get in an accident yelling at the knob that he should have been, go, she should go away for the rest of her life and they should pull out his toenails. That's what half of us would do or be thinking. But 10 years, <laughs> you wouldn't think, oh, hug that guy. He was just trying to save a few million. Right? Because the fact is, is that if we, if we recognize how wicked this guy is, he deserves every bit of this. This is exactly what should happen to somebody who lives this way. He's getting exactly what he deserves. For insulting his sonship, he deserves to be a servant. For living for the moment, he deserves to be happy only for a moment. For despising his community, he deserves to have no safety net. For seeking dissipation-focused company, he deserves for his company to dissipate. For not taking responsibility for himself, he deserves to have no one take responsibility for him. For caring for nothing else, for not, not caring for anyone else, he deserves to not have no one care about him. And for throwing away his moral life, he deserves to have his life throw away, thrown away. Within the moralistic impulse, we all know this guy absolutely deserves this. And if you don't let yourself feel that, you, the gospel can't speak to it. The fact is, this guy deserves this. The question just is, okay, well now what? Well now what? What do you do with a moral monster— who's starving to death. What do you do with that guy? And the reason this is so important is because we need to realize that there is a very, very short step from righteous anger to self-righteous indignation. A very short step. Um, You will not ever be able to fully convince your heart of the liberal large L proposition that you shouldn't judge people because nothing is judgeable. That's never going to work 
that's never going to get any real traction. You can repeat it and you can mimic it publicly, but it will never reside in your heart. That, oh, every, you know, everything's basically morally the same, and so we shouldn't judge everybody, and who has the right, and there's no, nothing that we can know. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Here's why we don't judge people. Here's why. Because we are not, we don't have the moral capacity to do it. Do you remember, at the end of Romans 12, Paul is talking about enemies, and he says, listen, do not take wrath out on people, right? Now, why, what's Paul's reasoning in Romans 12? Paul's, re, Paul's reasoning is not, well, because, you know, God doesn't get angry, so why should you? That's not what he says. Have you ever read the Bible? Does God get angry? Yes, yes, God gets angry. Okay, so God gets angry. Why can't we? And here's why. Because in God, the, the wall of truth that stands between absolutely righteous and appropriate wrath and self-righteous indignation of I'm better than you, that wall of truth will never be transgressed. With us, we're not even going to make it to the parking lot. That's why. It's our depravity that makes us unqualified to heap wrath and judgment on a person like this. Not the fact that he's not a scumbag. This dude is a scumbag. He is. But, but, our task isn't to heap our—see, it's a question of qualification in what your job is. It's not a question of what's right. And so Jesus is saying is, okay, you got a scumbag who's starving. What do you do? A really, really bad scumbag who's starving and wants to come home. What do you do? Right? And the second part of this story is that there's two responses, one of the dad and one of the son, right? Now the dad's is compassion, right? The son wanted to fill his stomach with garbage-smeared magnolia leaves. The father, as soon as he sees his son down the road, is what? Filled with compassion, right? And we've probably rehearsed a thousand times what he does. But there's, a, there's of course, another response— the older brother's anger. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fat in half for him. It's a big contrast, right? Big contrast. Now, I think that you need to give the older brother a little bit of a break, okay? Because for two reasons. One, you're going to find out you are the older brother. <laughs> so don't be too hard on him. But secondly is, he's probably kept his mouth shut up until this point. Okay? Now, if, if you had one sibling, and your dad was wealthy, and your sibling came and asked for his share of the inheritance, would, would you have even kept your mouth shut? Step one? Most of us wouldn't. Right? This guy has probably kept his mouth shut. He just can't take it anymore. You know, what, you know what it's like? When you don't let it out in bits and you don't deal with it, all of a sudden one day it just comes out. This guy, he just can't. He, he hears the party and obviously word wasn't sent to him. I mean, can you, you see how ticked you would be? You're coming in and you're like, there's music. It smells good. And all the servants are inside. And there's this, he's like, what's going on? He's like, oh yeah, there's a party. Your brother's home. We killed the fat and calf. We're having a riot. And he's like, and, and nobody even told me. And the who's back? That, are you serious? And then, you know, he, 
And then he's like, what? He put a robe on him and a ring? And no, he is not letting him back into the family. Because what happens if he's let back in the family? He gets another share, which means what's the total take for this dude when his dad finally dies? 75% of the family's assets and he's a scumbag. That ain't good. That ain't good. So, you, I mean, you can imagine. You gotta give him a little bit of a break because he's held his tongue and he's you, okay? But he's bad, man. I mean, he—I mean, think about this. The shots he takes at his dad. Look. Do you let your kids talk to you like that? Because you shouldn't. I don't like to be talked to like that. Look, buddy. And then, all these years I've been slaving for you. Right? Meaning, I'm the one who worked hard, not my scumbag brother. And secondly, you're a slave driver. You're not generous. You may be generous with that scumbag in the house. You've never been generous with me. You're a hypocrite. That's what you are. I've never disobeyed you, in contrast to your failure son, and in irony because I'm doing it right now. And, but you've never given me anything. And when he gets to talk about the, the brother, remember what he says? He didn't say, my brother who's this comeback. What does he say? That son of yours. Because the father calls him his son. The servant calls him his brother, right? He says, that son of yours. And then when the father speaks, what does the father call him? Your brother. He doesn't say my son. So this is the only guy who won't call him his brother. His brother is the only guy who won't call him his brother, right? It's very intentional. And then he says, he basically says, your son who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the cat, fattened calf for him. Essentially, he's saying, you should be ashamed of yourself for celebrating this kind of wickedness. You're essentially celebrating his life. And see, that's, that's why you cannot deny the fact that the moral impulse is there. Because what happens when you celebrate a scumbag coming home? What you're doing is you're taking away the consequences. That's what you're doing, right? And so what does that do? That, that undermines things socially. There's, there's issues with that, right? We all know that. We may not want to admit it, and we may not want to admit it publicly, but we all know that. We know that when you take away consequences for people doing scumbag kind of stuff, there's problems with that. And that's exactly what this guy's done. And this son is reminding him that. He's saying, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Taking that kind of person and throwing this big gala for him, and then I'm actually the one who's obeyed you, and you've never done anything for me. Right? You see, from a certain perspective, that's a decent argument. But what, what the father is saying is, you're arguing for two arrows that never intersect. Let me, let me, let me put it to you this way since I want to wrap up because whatever. Um, what was the last picture that this guy probably had of his brother? Right? Because he hasn't seen him yet. So last time he saw his brother, he was fat, dumb and, ha dumb and happy, riding his horse with money bags hanging off the sides. He hasn't seen the 45-pound later, you can see his ribs, doesn't even have a shirt left. His, one of his sandals is gone. Emaciated guy who came home. He didn't see that guy. 
He's arguing sight unseen. So, so he didn't give himself the, the opportunity for compassion. And when we keep ourselves at arm's length from people who need compassion, the only thing we're ever going to see is how they don't deserve it. When I'm sitting in my study and I think about homeless people, do you know what the first thought that comes to my mind is? Their irresponsibility. It's the first thing I think of because I'm in my office celebrating my responsibility. I'm a big pastor guy now, right? But you know what happens when I used to go to my church on Thursdays to feed homeless people in the park? And I talked with three or four of them. Now, did I go home thinking, you know what? It's just a responsible, hardworking guy. Just had a few breaks. Just had a few bad breaks. That's all that is. Is that what I was thinking when I was driving home? No. And they did, that's not the story they pitched. They're like, dude, I, it would have be been great if I was born three livers. I just about drank myself to death. A lot of prescription drugs. Walked out on three wives. My kids won't talk to me. Um, but I'm hungry. <laughs> you know? And when I leave, I don't think, I don't think, oh, I shouldn't judge. What I think is, man, I really want to help that guy. I wonder how I could help that guy. I wonder how I can inspire my church to, to help him and get him back on his feet and get him going and help his faith to grow and help him get a job and help him go to that job daily. And I wonder if I can be part of that because I saw him. And what the father's saying, he turns to his son, you know, after all that basically logical tirade the older son gives, what does the father say back? Son, we had to celebrate. <laughs> Talk about an unhelpful answer when you're mad, right? Son, you argue all you want. We had to celebrate. We had to celebrate. He came home. He was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. What do you, what do you want me to do? Go get my shotgun? He's my son. Now, let me just close it real fast this way. You see, when you look closely at the story, you know what you're going to find? And, th and this is why the older brother ought to not judge the younger brother. This is why we can't judge bad, bad people. Because the older brother is committing the exact same sin. That's the problem. Different tactics, same idol. They both want the money. Do you notice that? Both, why is he so mad about the, Why is he so mad about the party? Right? The servant's not mad about the party. Well, it's because it's not a servant's inheritance that's getting wasted on a scumbag brother. That's why. He's seeing his inheritance clink, clink, clink going away because the son, they're both playing different tactics. One is the libertine, the other is the moralist. They're playing different tactics. One's the responsible person, one's the bohemian. Different tactics, but what they're both after is their share of the inheritance. They both have the exact same sin. They both don't love the father anymore. They want his stuff. And what are they all missing? What is the great treasure in this story? This father! I mean, look at this guy. This is a guy who, uh, one of his sons can walk up to him and say, I don't care if you're alive. Give me my money. I want to go. And instead of like killing him or disowning him, he goes, that's the way you got to learn. That's the way you got to learn. Who waits for his son. When his son comes home, he runs out in a very undignified way for a Middle Eastern father, hugs his son, who is unclean with pig manure probably still on him. This is a father who could have gone out with his cricket bat and solved the problem with the older son that way because he had no responsibility to be nice to that hissy fit pitching grown-up who had no right to be mad because all the stuff was still the father's because his heart was still beating and if he wants to spend one of his fattened calves on his scumbag son he very well can. 
But he didn't. What did he say? He says he went out, and what does it say? He pleaded with him. The patriarch of an ancient pleading with his son? He's saying, son, come in. You belong in, in the party. You belong in the house. You belong in the family. The great treasure of this story, missed by both sons, is this father. And the minute you and I get beyond the honeymoon phase with Jesus, and we start thinking about all the ways Jesus is going to bless our lives when we start living clean and living right, is the minute we will instantly become older brothers before we hit that parking lot, and it's over. It is over. The joy is gone. The evangelistic ability, everything is gone. Because Jesus will become a means to an end just like the older brother. And, and essentially, it's the same idol as the younger brother. And the great thing the older brother then missed was this. Who should have gone after this guy? The younger brother? Who should have gone after? Was it the father? Who could have gone to a distant country? Whose job was that? The older brother was too busy staying in the father's eye, looking busy, to recognize he had his hand out for a blessing from the father. He should have had his hips around a horse, riding out into another country to find his scumbag brother to bring him home. And the whole story is being told by the true greater older brother, Jesus. Right? Jesus is the one who went off to a distant country he is the one who took on the hardship of suffering and travel. He is the one who was willing to lay down his life to redeem you and I, the true younger brothers, and to do so in a way so gracious as to not turn us into older brothers. That is the gospel, that we are saved freely. Our past is younger brothers. What we're trying to avoid is being older brothers, and we can do it because the great love is the Father and not his blessings and not his things. Father, I pray that as, um, as we gather together as a church for a new season, we pray that you would make us a church very much in love with the gospel. We pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and that through faith and through your work in our lives, we would be a people who um, would not be the older brother, but that we would be like the true older brother, your son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to go whatever distance, whatever measure, because he, was, he cared about the, your heart. He cared about the Father's heart. He, he had a passion to bring us back, and no amount of ease or entitlement would keep him from his role. We pray that you would make us a people that, that could, literally could care less about your blessings other than to just be thankful for them, but to care about you and your heart and to value and cherish you as we learn more and understand the gospel more deeply. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.